Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Was Yeshua a blasphemer on Hanukkah? That is the topic of what we're taking a look at. And the subtext of that is, is, you know, were the leaders of Israel absolutely correct when they were trying to stone Yeshua for saying, I and the Father are one in John chapter 10, verse 30. Now, in times past, we've talked about this in John chapter 10 in the connection with Hanukkah, because one of the celebrations, as you can see in the those primers that we've passed around for um, Hanukkah, we talk about the historical aspects of it. Did you all get one? We got them over on the brochure thing over here. Tammy, I think, uh, put some more out there. So we've got more copies of that available. And that goes over the historical aspects of the celebration of Hanukkah. And as it's mentioning, um, it comes historically from the it talks mainly about this in the first two books of Maccabees, and the you'll find that in the Apocrypha sections of various translations of the Bible. But the celebration of Hanukkah covers a period that's known as the Maccabean Revolt. So just when you think historically speaking, this is a time period in you know, roughly, it was at uh, 164, 65 BC and uh, stretched uh, for about six years or so. And it talks about that in the context of what was going on. Because when you look in the falling apart of the Greek empire, you know, think of Alexander the Great. Alexander was so great, he went and conquered huge area of the ancient world at that time, stretching from what was, you know, modern, you know, think modern day Greece, Macedonia is where he came out of, and then he swept eastward, he swept eastward all the way over into part of India, and then went south all the way down into northern Africa, Egypt area. Huge area he conquered. So, he conquered over a you know, previous empire that had been there before, the Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Median Empire, the Persian Empire, and he had swept over that area and went greatly expanding beyond that. But when he died, a relatively young age, it was a big fight between his generals. <clears throat> We think, oh, well, there's just, we're four generals. Well, actually, there were more generals than that, but it was just basically came down to four of them that it was split up among. And one of those particular generals was uh, Seleucus, who had uh, took an area of that included um, both modern-day Syria and also modern-day Lebanon, uh, the Holy Land there in modern-day Israel, modern-day Jordan, and swept down into Egypt. And that area was under these, uh, actually almost down into Egypt, because that was Ptolemy who had Egypt, who um, that general took that part of it. So, what was the result of this? 
Result of this, one of the descendants of Seleucus came up with a great idea, and it was a common thing of the time period, and you can read about there, one of his descendants, Antiochus IV, uh, came to get the name called Epiphanes, or Epiphanes. He got that name because he thought he was... uh, (laughs) something great and a common approach that what they would take in times past we see that with in the bible it talks about the exiles both by assyria of the northern kingdom of israel and of babylon the southern kingdom or of judah what they would do is they would displace people take the people out from where they were because that's one of the ways that you destroy nationalism is you go in and you remove people from where they were and move them into some basically swap places with people so that you destroy people's natural attachment to where they are in historically where they have been well they'd also do that with their deities as well and they'd go in and wipe out their deities replace them overwrite them etc and that was one of the things that was going on there with israel under antiochus IV and some of those kings of the seleucid empire at the time he came up with a rule that he was going to overwrite the practices of the israelites who were there in the land and overwrite them um yes uh rose you have a comment or a question i have good news Yes. God said, I'm going to put you all back in your land. Ah, yes, that's right. That, Everybody's that was, going back where they belong. That, that, that's a good promise, yes. Uh, restore people to their land. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, indeed. So that was something that was going to be overwritten of people's practices. Now, you can read about it, and we have a couple of excerpts there in the pamphlet about some particular practices that they were doing of, of overriding people's, um, people's belief systems, and one of which was circumcision. If the parents were circumcising their children, they, that was a death penalty, if you were observing the weekly Shabbat, that was a death penalty. If you were teaching the Torah at all, studying the Torah at all, death penalty. Studying the scriptures, death penalty. So you think about this, when you get down to what is recorded in the Gospels, that is roughly only about 200 years removed from this. You know, you think about our American Revolution and the War of Independence. That's over, 100, uh, over 200 years now, 200, up to 235 years, something like that. From that period, well, it's about the same period removed from that. And we don't have the same kind of uh, cultural memory today that ancient people did of passing on the legacy from one generation to the next. So this was still very raw, and you see the elements of that that came in in the undertext of the Gospels, especially since (laughs) after the great um, rebirth of Israel, after the Maccabean desolation of the temple, basically turning it into a um, house of ill repute for a few years, sacrificing um, pagan and unclean things on the altar of God there, putting it out of business, 
Then you see them bring back in these practices after the temple is rededicated. And that's what Hanukkah is celebrating there. And that time period on the 24th day of the ninth month of Israel's calendar was the time of dedication of putting this into effect. Now, as you see about it in the Maccabees, they talk about this, that they celebrated for eight days because of they weren't able to celebrate the eight days of Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles a couple of months before. Because as you can see in the Bible, the Feast of Tabernacles is celebrated in the seventh month. Well, in the seventh month, the temple was not in business because it was under the occupation and use as a pagan temple at that particular time period so hanukkah is celebrating it put back into action and rededicated to being the place where god's name is placed now remember that this is rededicated to be the place where god's presence is dwelling that is what hanukkah is celebrating that festival of dedication dedicated to being a place where the presence of god is communicated is celebrated well thus when you get down into the first century a lot happened after the maccabean revolt and you can read about that in in the accounts of josephus and also in maccabees itself is that you had a civil war that came following that it didn't stay a wonderful let's dedicate ourselves to god affair there was a civil war between factions and the reason why rome was in the holy land at that time was one of those factions decided that they needed help to win over the other faction so what did they do well sold out <laughs> yeah julius caesar yes basically called him and not called him but Pompey had him to come in to deal with the people that were his opposition. And what, who did they install? Came to be known as, uh, later known as the Hasmoneans. And King Herod. Well, who were they? Were they from the line of the kings? From the line of Yehudo? Where were they descended from? Edom, yes. We were just reading about Edom, and that comes from what? Who? The line of Esau, yes. So instead of the line of Yaakov and then the line of, of um, then Yehuda, no, this was now the line of Edom that was on the throne. And the priesthood was, they were basically vassals of Rome. Rome installed them and, and put them into office. In their particular time period so that is the backdrop of what we're we're looking at here this was a celebration hey we had this foreign power that came in took away the temple as being the place where we celebrate and worship the presence of god out of action god gave us a gift of being able to put it back in service again as the presence of the dwelling place of god but, uh-oh, there was a bankruptcy within the people 
a spiritual bankruptcy, both within the kingship and the priesthood, kings and priests. They're not from the line of Yehuda anymore, like what was promised in to uh, King David, and also promised, as we'll see at the end of Genesis, promised to Yaakov and promised to Yehuda that from his line, Shiloh would come. Which is kind of interesting, because what was uh, Yehuda having a problem with, with Tamar? Yeah, it's kind of interesting little, little play on words with the name there. But anyway, so problem with the kings, not from the line of Yehuda, not the line of David, through whom it was promised that the Shiloh would come and also the one to whom this line was to be dedicated, the Messiah would come. And then the priesthood, that wasn't Aaron's family. No, not even in the slightest. So a problem. So thus you have now this, this encounter that Yeshua is having there on Hanukkah. So the time period where people were getting together to celebrate, hey, God has remembered us and given us back the dwelling place of his, his name. Uh-oh. There is a problem because... The kings, not in that line. The priesthood, not in that line. So thus, we get down to where we are at in this particular passage. So how does this start out in, in John chapter 10? John chapter 10 starts out talking about, even before our passage goes, the crux of that up in those first 21 verses, key phrase in there is what? I am the... Good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And where do we hear that passage from? From the prophets before that. That was a promise. That was a messianic promise that came through the prophets. That there were many bad shepherds. You read in the book of Jeremiah, there would be lots of bad shepherds that were coming on Israel. In fact, that was all problem through the Maccabean era is that they had bad shepherds. The problem where it came down to be in the Civil War, where they had to bring in Rome to dominate. Bad shepherd in charge. So, in the context of that, Yeshua is saying, hey, you've heard in the word here about the good shepherd, the one who is going to lead the flock of Israel back to the Lord. I am the good shepherd. That is what, and the those who are of the true flock of Israel are going to hear the shepherd's voice. And they're going to know the shepherd's voice. That's key here. They are going to know the shepherd's voice. And they're not going to what? If they know the shepherd's voice, they're not going to, they're not going to follow another shepherd because they'll know when another shepherd is speaking because they can differentiate between the voice of one versus the other so that is key here as we get into this encounter later because you see in this passage that whole discussion of the shepherd spills over into the passage that we're looking at here starting in verse 22 because it brings up this topic of the shepherd again 
the shepherd know, knows the sheep, and the sheep know the shepherd's voice. So it comes up into this question there of John chapter 10, verse 30, where Yeshua says, you know, I and the Father are one. And there, that is in response to what? A question that comes earlier in there where they were like, don't keep us in suspense. Like verse 24, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Mashiach, tell us plainly. Tell us plainly. So then he goes on there, I told you, but you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. So then he goes on and explains there. My sheep are my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who is given to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to smash, snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That is key because what was the topic earlier in the message of the Good Shepherd? That comes from the prophets. Who is the Good Shepherd in the prophets? You might remember a famous psalm by that, starts out that way. Psalm 23 Who is my shepherd? The Lord is my shepherd. That is exactly what you see in Jeremiah. There's lots of bad shepherds out there, but who is the good shepherd? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Uh, yes, Alex, I have a comment or a question over there. I and the Heard Father said, are one yes. is, maybe you can get that in the interpretation from the Hebrew that you're of one mind, the way maybe Joseph was one with the Pharaoh. Mm. Uh, I've and seen the comparison. That's which is, one thing that we're going to be getting toward. Okay. But yes, that is because one. In one sentence, say we're one, and the next sentence, nobody is greater than the Father. It's yes. like, you better figure out where you stand. <laughs> that is one of, the, one of the topics of conversation. That's what we're getting at right now, because one of the key aspects that is leading up to this is saying, talking about the Good Shepherd, those who know the Word know exactly what he was referring to. Because in Jeremiah, who is the good shepherd? The Lord is the good shepherd. He's saying, I am the good shepherd. So he's already, that's, that's broadside number one that he's already lobbied across into the, into the fleet of those that are opposing him. But what he's saying that's led up to this is saying, what is his response to them? when they pick up stones to stone him, in verse 31. They picked up stones to stone him, and Yeshua answered to them, What? I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which are they stoning him? Right? Okay. Uh, yes, uh, Ben and I, we have a comment or a question over here. On verse 16, I really enjoyed this verse. It seems like a lot of people gloss over. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Yes. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. 
and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. And that just, to me, that just completely, absolutely ob- obliterates uh, the multi-camp ideas, you know, about, you know, being two different families or two different folds, you know, that, or you have the Jews and then you have the Gentiles or you have the Christians and you have the Messianics. It's just right there. It's like right here it says, and one shepherd, they shall be one fold and one shepherd. Where do you see that in the prophets? Yes, but where else? A very key passage. Ezekiel where? 36 in what passage? Okay. <laughs> two sticks. Remember the two sticks there? Ephraim and Judah. What is that? We've got those that from of um, the one of Ephraim and the one of Yehuda. And then he's going to take those and their associates on either side of Ephraim, northern kingdom, at that time dispersed into the nations. Yehuda, southern kingdom, and his companions. Still a cohesive whole to this day. Yes. So those that have associated with Yehuda, those who have associated with Ephraim, take both of those and do what? Make them as to one stick in whose hand? In the Lord's hand, yes. In Adonai's hand, he is making one. So what is a work of Adonai to make the two into one? So that is thus, the work of Adonai is to make the two one. So what is Yeshua saying? I've got other sheep. I'm going to call them all into this fold. That is a work of whom? Adonai. That is the work of Adonai. So when Yeshua is now saying, I've shown you these works. We're not talking miracles here. People think, I've done you good works. They're thinking it's just the light show that, so to speak, that Yeshua has done. What is the actual work that is being done? restoration which calling people into the kingdom that is the work and reconciliation that is the work so when you're seeing those things being done you'll know who is actually doing it adonai is the one who's actually doing this because that is what is one of the key things that is said about the um the key messiahship of yeshua well, has he actually restored? One of our key objections that we have that are continuing from our brothers and sisters in the, in the tribe of Yehuda is what? Well, has he restored everything? No. They're not asking about has he raised the dead. They're not asking about has he healed the sick. Has he given uh, sight to the blind? Because, you know, you'll see that God has given that power to what? The apostles? The apostles raised the dead. The apostles did this, did this. They did those good works. But that's not the work that is a sign of the Mashiach. Because when you see in Isaiah 61, and Yeshua was reading from that in a synagogue, Opening the eyes of the blind. Bringing people from the dead. Yes, you can do those in the temporal sense. But what is Isaiah getting at? 
you just do good works because you're charitable? No, Isaiah is all about what? The restoration of the people. That is the great work that is being done. Because how does Isaiah 1 open up? You guys are doing a whole bunch of stuff that I has commanded, but your hearts are not with me. So thus, I hate your feasts. I hate your sacrifices. Get out of my face. That's how Isaiah opens up. How does Isaiah end? 66. We do that and we recite from it every new moon. From new moon to new moon and from Shabbat to Shabbat, all mankind will come bow down before me, says the Lord. That is what the culmination of the work of the Mashiach does. It takes people from Isaiah 1 situation to Isaiah 66 situation, bringing them through the process. That's why you see the servant of the Lord being interspersed throughout the book of Isaiah. That is the work of the servant of the Lord, the one who actually brings the restoration. Because there are many servants of the Lord that have done great things. We call them apostles, um, prophets. They've done lots of great things. But the ultimate restoration of the kingdom of God, there is only one servant of the Lord who has ever done anything like that and who has ever intended according to the prophets, to do anything such as that. So that's been all leading up here in John chapter 10 to this particular point, is that I am the good shepherd. You've been looking for the shepherd to bring you back. You've been looking for the Psalm 23 shepherd. You've had lots of bogus ones that have come along. False shepherds, wolves in sheep's clothing, People that have just scattered, not gathered, but scattered. So, thus, when you see it coming up there, is it talks about there in John chapter 10, verse 19, a division occurred among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon, it is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others are saying, Well, these are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. The demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? And that's something that we see earlier. So what we see is, as this John chapter 10 is continuing, John chapter 10, verse 31, when it says, the Jews picked up stones again. When did they pick them up the first time? Chapter 8. At the Rewind button back a few chapters, uh, right at the end of it. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old, and I ha you have seen Abraham? So Yeshua said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Yeshua hid himself and went out of the temple. So this is the second time. The second time that he has said, look, this is more going on here than what you think is going on. So this is the second time where they've tried to stone him for blasphemy. 
And so one of the things that we would just ask, well, okay, so they've made this accusation about blasphemy, but why are they in particular accusing him of blasphemy? Uh, did someone have a question or a comment here? Uh, yes, Ben and I. Yes, um, uh, go ahead, please. Or it says in verse 3, Know ye that the Lord, he is God. Mm -hmm. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. I mean, they knew that the long-awaited one, that he would be a good shepherd. You know, I mean, all these uh, similarities between Yeshua and, like, David. You know, I mean, there's, they knew that he would be Emmanuel. You know, there's all the, the, you know, the prophecies of old, and yet here they are raking him over the coals because he's claiming to be, you know, uh, you know, yeah, the Lord, you know, that the one that the long awaited Messiah, Emmanuel. And it's, I just find it interesting. They said, we don't stone you for all the good works, but that you claim to be God. Yeah. All right. So let's take a look at into more of like this question of why are they, looking to pick up stones to stone him. One of the things that you see is about some definitions of blasphemy, just kind of working backward from our particular text that we're working at here, is blasphemia. That's a hard Greek word. Take a guess of what that means. Blasphemy, hey, there we go. But in uh, the... Yes, the... Um, the, what's called the Danker lexicon has a definition of blasphemia is speech that denigrates or defames reviling denigration disrespect or slander and it's something that showed up in classical greek literature too about speaking that way against the deities so that is the, the backdrop of that another definition uh, comes from the greek english lexicon of the new testament Impious denigration of the deity, especially heinous or many translations reflect the emotive value of the loan word blasphemy. So, okay, we got a basic definition of that. Now let's work. Yes, Christine, we got. Sorry to interrupt. Do you think in your definitions, because you probably have it in store for us, I don't want to jump the gun, but is there, will you be referencing when there were. In the Old Testament, I cannot put my finger on the address, but when the, um, somebody was going to invade them and they were on the temple and they were speaking blasphemy into the... Uh, oh, yes. And against, they were speaking Hebrew. Yes. The, the prayer language. Yes, Sennacherib. Thank you. Who is that again? That was uh, one of the invading uh, generals. Okay. That was, wasn't uh, that the first time blasphemy? Oh, no. Okay. No, 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 not, not right. even in the slightest. Okay, there so, we go. when we're talking about blasphemy, that's just when we're saying from the, the gospel uh, language there underneath the hood, looking at the Greek, well, that is what was understood. So when you have that word used in Greek, that's what was understood. So let's work backward then into where you see these particular um, elements in the... Um, in the Torah. So, first particular passages about uh, where we get from the start of the principle of blasphemy is from the 
Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, specifically Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, and its parallel passage in Deuteronomy 5, verse 11, otherwise known as the third commandment or the third word. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished or literally hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So then you have the corollaries there of um, another way that this is rendered in the Targums, which the Targums are uh, Aramaic, um, you could say the paraphrases, uh, translations that were you could say the common um, synagogue Bible that was available in many of the congregations in the first few centuries A.D. So, uh, yes, and that's uh, when she said, aren't they like sermons? Yes, and that's why when you say paraphrases, because they, they include a translation, but also in some cases a big expansion upon it. So you have to... You look at the Targums, the, the Targumim, as um, what people were thinking in the synagogue in these first few centuries. So it's rendering of Exodus 20, verse 7, you shall not swear by the name of the Lord your God in vain, and the Lord will not acquit those who swear by his name falsely. And with the Septuagint, you also have the idea he will never acquit the person. So when you see some of these thoughts, and these come from the uh, sages in the Middle Ages, such as Rashi and Ibn Ezra, their take of it is in vain, worthless oath. And this is where we're going here, as you see coming forward, the idea of vain meaning a worthless oath. In other words, they compare it to uh, swearing that a column of stone is really made out of gold. So something that is obvious, should be obvious to the hearer, you're saying, no, it's not that, it's something else. So this should be starting to ring some bells in your head as we move forward here further. So uh, Ibn Ezra makes a great observation of this, such as if, um, if Elohim swears a thing, making it an unconditional decree, by his right hand or the throne of glory or the heavens, all of these things have permanence. So one who swears to a falsehood is desecrating God's name. Basically saying, if you are appealing to the name of God and then saying it is something else, you are now incurring God's wrath then upon you. So, uh, Ibn Ezra, the sage, Ibn Ezra, so this is not, not the prophet Ezra, this is the sage, Ibn Ezra, which means it's a, an Arabic rendering of it, meaning son of Ezra. It's what the uh, sage is known as. So that's one of those things that you can see is under the hood a bit, and we'll see a bit from uh, some of the Talmud instructions about how you deal with blasphemers is how this relates to this. Uh, yes, uh, Alex, uh, go ahead, please. Sense of humor. This is almost down to saying a word, and I just happened to see the Monty Python skit <laughs> on wherever this week. I hadn't seen it in 30 years. Just saying the word Jehovah was what they were stoning him for. Ah, yes. Remember, all I said was, this food is so good, told my wife, that 
it's good enough for Jehovah. Oh, you can't say that. This mm -hmm. guy's stoning and that guy's stoning. So in the spirit of you, what Yeshua was trying to say is, you know, it's just not down to a word, right? Mm -hmm. Just saying God is not enough to yeah. get what? stoned, right? Oh, don't say, kill him, kill him. No trial or anything. Yeah, and that is actually what is, un is actually a long-running um discussion about the shema which is where we're we're going as we move forward with this uh yes uh lorella i'm just a tiny bit confused i guess okay because um i was taught that to blaspheme is to offer insult to god yes that's one of those definitions that we're so, talking about yeah okay but basically it's insulting to the creator of heaven and earth to say that the creator of heaven and earth is something that he's not yeah. or he does something that he hasn't done or this so that's why um you'll see the third commandment often said to make his name of no effect or mm -hmm. to bring it low to denigrate it to bring it lower in the sight of things and as we move forward i was i was also taught that it's like if you say, like you used the column of stone is really gold, uh, it was, God can't make this column of stone into mm. a column of gold. God's not able. Yes. Or God um, caused your grandmother to die when he didn't. So it's lying about God yes. or those kinds of things. Indeed. Yeah, indeed. So... One of the other uh, interesting aspects of uh, this is just, I will close it out here with the, the comments among the sages uh, with a passage here from Nachmanides about idolatry. And he's connecting both the second commandment on idolatry and the third commandment about worthless oaths. But basically, both of them are stealing God's glory, his the weight that should be upon God, if you give it to an idol or saying that there's something else, the weight that you would be giving to the creator of heaven and earth is going somewhere else. If you use his name, his reputation, say it is something different, then you are taking the glory that should be there and shifting it somewhere else. So both of those together is an interesting aspect of combining it with idolatry um, and he makes the comment this commandment follows that uh, that one against idolatry because just as it is forgiven forbidden to give God's glory to another one must not give his name it one must give his name its proper glory and the one who uses it in vain then profanes it or makes it common is making it common so thus you get back to what you're hearing in John chapter 10, verse 33 of Yeshua's accuser saying, hey, you are trying to steal God's glory here. Of That's why you were saying, hey, it's not because of what you've done. It's because what you've said, because you're now doing what? You're attributing the works that you do to what? Yourself. Saying, okay, yes. I deserve that much weight as that to be given to the creator of heaven and earth. So another passage that we look at 
in in context of this aspect of blaspheming it comes from exodus chapter 28 uh, exodus 22 verse 28 where it says you shall not curse god nor curse a ruler of your people and you might ring a bell because that's one of the ones that the apostle paul quoted and uh he quoted that particular passage in reference to um sorry 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 uh what was that again uh no this is uh so i probably apologize i hit the wrong button so um one of the passage here is you shall not curse god nor curse a ruler of your people so we see that a very interesting aspect that's in the uh, targum for that of Onkelos, and he renders it as, you shall not belittle the judges and you shall not curse a leader of your people. Now, that is interesting because it directly relates to how Yeshua responded in John chapter 10. He said, haven't you heard it said, you are God's quoting from Psalm 82, verse 6. I'm sure I've said that you are God's. Well, the interpretation that came through with the sages on this is that that passage when it says that you are Elohim, this passage here in Exodus chapter 22, verse 8, under the hood, it says that you shall not curse which is the root verb of kalal, you shall not curse Elohim, nor curse the ruler of your people, the uh, nasi, which is otherwise known as the president. You might know the president of a congregation is called the nasi, or the leader of a congregation. So thus, when Paul is quoting this, he's saying, you not curse the leader of your people or the ruler of your people that is also in the context of cursing the judges of your people so one of the two ways that you can take uh, exodus chapter 22 verse 28 is you will not curse god and you will not curse the leader of your people but it can also be read as you will not curse the powerful ones the elohim and you will not curse the ruler of your people and that's where you see that moved over into psalm 82 verse 6 where it's taken to refer to the judges of the people are blind they are not able to see what is going on it's because then when you read psalm 82 that is the context of it the the elohim there your elohim you don't get it you don't see what is really going on here so thus when you see yeshua quoting this to them those that should know the scriptures would know what he was getting at there because that is the the whole thrust of psalm 82 those who should know don't know those who should see can't see what is really going on here so, and a very interesting um, 
thing that relates also to the passage that we're talking about there is in Exodus uh, 22 verse 28 in the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures it talks about you shall not revile the gods or the the theos which is the plural form of it and that's the same word that you see um, used in the uh, in John chapter 10 when it talks about you are gods not talking about the singular so another passage to look at as we move forward is Leviticus 19:2 where it says you shall not swear falsely by name my name so as to profane the name of your god i am the lord so that's new american standard rendering of this now interesting thing to back this forward a little bit is to look at the sage rashi's take on this we are told in exodus 20 verse 7 which is referring to the third commandment you know from the one who might think that this prohibition applies only to the tetragrammaton that's your big uh, 50 cent word of the day that just means the four letter name of god the yod he wav he that together that's what the tetragrammaton is now our verse comes to apply to all the divine names and thus you see in this particular passage and you shall not swear falsely by any name that i have so that's very interesting because you see in this particular passage and as we'll get to um as we look at how the talmud talks about how you are supposed to hold a trial against somebody who commits blasphemy that came to be a particularly important aspect because you could say well i didn't mention the tetragrammaton so just since i didn't utter those four letters i'm scot-free well they're like well the spirit of the law as you see in leviticus 19 12 is that if you are using even a reference word to it you know such as el shaddai el el yon if you're using something that is even a a descriptor name of the lord you are also dragging it down if you yes so Moving on a little bit further in this, in Deuteronomy 10, verse 20, which is another um, key example of this. Actually, let's move on into a case study of this. And this is a key one that is used in how the Talmud talks about how you handle a trial for a blasphemer. And they always come back to this one in Leviticus 24, verses 10 through 23. And this is that one of the, remember, the rebellious son? The rebellious son he had what a his mother was from israel one of the tribes where was his father from mitzrayim his father was an egyptian his mother was one from one of the tribes of israel and so thus he's accused of the alleged crime is then mentioned in Leviticus 24:11. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. So you got two things there. He blasphemed, and that's for using the um, verb of yakav, 
And then he cursed for Kalal again. So one of the, the Targum trans, translation of this is the son of the Israelite woman clearly pronounced the name and provoked to anger. So they brought him to Moshe. So thus you see what that is in, interpreted to mean, as you see in the first centuries AD, that you clearly pronounce the name. You're not, I mean, someone just doesn't mishear you, um, you know, instead of saying like El Shaddai, they think you said something else and they misheard you. So thus you'll say that they have to bring in witnesses to say what it is you heard them say. And thus um, they had a specific way that you were supposed to do that because in open court, you couldn't actually repeat what it is that you said. You would just use a, like a, a stand-in phrase. And then they would have a closed session where they would actually say, okay, what exactly did you hear the person said? And that was only supposed to be there before the high priest that would be actually hearing what was actually intended to be said there. So, one of the... <laughs> the um, Another key example of this comes from Isaiah 52, verse 5, where it says, Now therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have taken away without, or have been taken away without cause? Again, the Lord declares, Those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. Now that blaspheme there is under the hood of that is the a Hebrew verb of uh, na'atz is that particular verb. And uh, the theological word book of the Old Testament has a definition of that is the root of na'atz signifies the action or attitude whereby the former recipient of a favorable disposition and or service is, con is consciously viewed and or treated with disdain. So you're basically saying somebody that who you have had a relationship with and you were favorable to them before is now treated with disdain. And we see that in, in, in today's, uh, we, what term do we use for that in modern parlance? We call it backstabbing. Somebody who you've had a relationship with, it probably has gone well before, and then... They've turned on you, and they're backstabbing you. They're planting seeds and saying something bad about you now. So that is where you see this word being used that's used under the hood of Isaiah 52, 5. So thus you're saying that my name is continually blasphemed all day long. So na'atz, continually treated with disdain by people who used to like me, says the Lord. So they're off in the nations. They used to praise my name. And now what? They treat the Lord with disdain. Low regard, yes, indeed. So as you see there in like in that Israel was once a favored one. But because she was treated Adonai with disdain, so now 
the nations use her former favor as a cudgel to disdain Adonai. And that was predicted, you see, in Deuteronomy 31 and 32. The Lord says, hey, this is going to happen. You're going to disobey. You're going to get into the land that I've given you. The Lord gives Israel the land. They go in there. They forget who brought them to the land, who gave them the blessings, who gave them all sorts of things. So then they actually not only forget, but they actively then go after all of the other gods of the land and then attribute their greatness to all the other gods of the land. And you see in the northern tribes, they set up altars to other gods. And in the, in the northern kingdom, after the division, after the time of David, you see that they were also celebrating whole different festivals on a different schedule. And also some of the festivals of God on a different schedule. Just moved them and to a different time period so that the people wouldn't be doing a pilgrimage down to Jerusalem because that would be in a different nation. It would be the kingdom of Yehuda, not the kingdom of Israel with its capital up in Samaria. So, thus, you see, it's very interesting that um, the Apostle Paul uses a parcel quotation of Isaiah 52.5. You know, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He uses that in Romans chapter 2, verse 24. But it's very interesting that Paul's rendering follows mostly from the Septuagint rendering of Isaiah 52.5, which has the because of you at the beginning of the phrase rather than the end of the phrase. So saying, hey, where is the blame for this actually going? The blame of it is going because of what the people have done. Because how did Israel end up in exile to begin with? Is it because the nations were just so powerful that they just wrested Israel out of the promised land, out of God's hand? Did they, the nations just pry the fingers open? Was Sennacherib just so fantastic that he just pried God's fingers open and yanked Israel right out of his hand? Was Nebuchadnezzar just so fantastic that he just pried the fingers of God open and pulled Israel right out and destroyed the temple, destroyed Jerusalem because of it? Uh, yes, uh, Ben and I. I was wondering when the, the leaders of the day, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the others that had to come against uh, Christ with these railing accusations, um, they were directly going against the word of God. So would that have incurred upon themselves the curse? I mean, the, the very thing that they were accusing Christ of, they were doing themselves because it's all throughout the scriptures about Emmanuel, God with us, also in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, everlasting father, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. They knew these scriptures. They knew it, and yet basically they seemed to be blaspheming themselves, meaning that they were going against the very scriptures that they knew. And so would, would that incur the curse upon themselves? Because they're accusing him of something that they're doing themselves, being very hypocritical in nature, and not rightly dividing the word of God. 
Yeah, it would it would be a very interesting question to take a look at. And as we see this go on, and Yeshua's quotation back from Psalm eighty two, you would definitely start thinking that that is what should they should be getting the message about this, which is also a very interesting picture. Is that they look to take action against Yeshua at the end of this, but they can't. As much as they want to, they can't. Just like they couldn't the first time they tried, as recorded there in John chapter 8. Yes, it wasn't the time. So, one of the things <laughs> that we also look at here in, is Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 20 and 21. When they came to the nations where they had went, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel has profaned among the nations where they, meant, where they went. In this case, you have again the Hebrew verb of, of kalal, which is what's translated as uh, profaned. And really, it aptly describes the great damage that was done to the reputation of Adonai by this the heart condition uh, yes uh, Christine go ahead please so I blaspheme God I have done it before by my behavior given Adonai a black eye you know and it's uh, just something that we have to be aware of at all times so it isn't just uh, outward rebellion sometimes it's how we speak and um, give, yeah, of low regard mm. in um, actions or when we want to use a scripture um, out of place or maybe not the appropriate time. And yeah, I've always, um, it's, it's about maturing, right, in the word and, and uh, being seasoned with our, with my words anyway, but. I, yeah, this is a message that uh, rings true in my own life sometimes. Yeah, because when, when you think about this, that as we as ambassadors of the Messiah, we're always on duty. There's not just like, oh, uh, Saturday during these hours, there we go, I, I'm on duty, and then every other hour of the entire week is... I'm off duty as an ambassador of the Messiah, an ambassador of God's kingdom. No, it's something that we're always on duty. So uh, one of the interesting aspects of this uh, root verb of, of kalal here is that it's used, uh, and this is a, an item from the theological word book of the Old Testament, used to mark the act of doing violence to the established law of God or breaking the covenant of God, or the divine statutes. And those are found in you know, Zephaniah 3, 4, and Psalm 55, 21, and Psalm 89, 31. So thus to profane is to misuse the name of God, the Sabbath, or the holy place, or so desecrate it. So you are taking these names of God, the Shabbat, the holy place, and dragging them down. That should now be ringing another bell for you. Remember in the book of Acts, 
what was the disciple Stephen accused of? Speaking against what? The law of Moshe? The temple? Yeah, there you go. So you're saying that these kinds of standards for what it meant for to blaspheme had these, all these various aspects to it, the reputation of God to then bring down also the aspects and the things related to God. So thus, when we get back to, into the Gospels, we see this interesting aspect of how it's talked about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Uh, yes, Alex, uh, go ahead, please. I want to mention that. My youngest brother, who suffers from mental illness, um, was on that a year or two ago. Oh, I'm done. I'm done. I blaspheme against mm. the Holy Spirit. There's no coming back. I'm done. I'm done. So uh, he got past that, thank God. What, what did he uh, think that he was? I don't know. I've never mm. even got that detail out. Uh, I was, but, you know, the mental illness doesn't mm -hmm. help. I mean, he runs hot and cold. And he was mm -hmm. running low there. Quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, this is, this is one passage, and the other passage that you'll see is in Hebrews chapter 10, where it talks about, you know, if you disregard this offering, there's no more offering for you. There's no more uh, sacrifice for sin left for you. And everybody thinks that, you know, the combination of these two, the unpardonable sin, a very then easy to be caught up in one versus the other. Yes. I was wondering for Ananias and Sapphira, was that uh and was that the same language used about when they like uh when they lied, like they blasphemed when they said that, you know, that they had uh done what everyone else had done. Is there any correlation you know against the you know the spirit of the Lord um when they had done that act? Yes. And it's very good that you mentioned that because that actually relates to the particular passage that you see, like in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 30, where you're having Yeshua talking about, hey, these accusations coming against me. You can lob anything you want against me. But if you are claiming, hey, that the Spirit of God is brought lower then that's where the problem comes in because what are you saying you can say okay he's got a demon and this and that and the other but if you are saying that he is doing this power by the kingdom of the adversary what are you actually Im implying that the power of god is the power of the adversary so you are not seeing where the power is actually coming through, which relates back to where we're back here in John chapter 10. Because, okay, which of my good works? And they're like, well, none of them, because, you know, you healed people. Because you see in the preceding chapters talking about healing the blind person, healing people here, healing people there. None of those good works you can say, we have any fault with. But you're saying, okay, now you're going to take this even further. Yes, uh, Ben and I, go ahead. Is it possible, it seems in the scripture, a possibility that those uh, who are in places of leadership, who are teaching the laws and the commands, who basically 
take such drastic measures to uh, discard someone who's speaking the truth uh, for whatever the reasons and blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I mean, people that know. I mean, I'm not talking about ignorant children, immature people, uh, babes in Yeshua HaMashiach, but I'm talking about seasoned, mature people who, for whatever the reasons, end up blaspheming uh, the Lord's anointed ones but that are speaking the truth in a humble heart. It talks about those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That that's like an unpardonable. I'm just wondering, I'm asking, is that, is that a plausible? Is that plausible? It could be, and one of the ways where you see that it possibly could be getting into that territory is where you see it in uh, Matthew chapter 5, where you know, that passage of starting in verse 17, and it ends there with you know, those that teach what? That teach these things, teach the commandments of God, even the least of them, is considered what? Great. But those that what teach against are considered least. So you can see that the, the particular aspect where you look into that is um, you're into very dangerous territory when you start saying that things that are things that are the words of God are not the words of God or that they um, change because one of the aspects that we get at is what is the character of God that we depend upon him when he makes a promise when he's making these promises of them he's faithful holy separate from us truth well if truth shifts and changes how do we depend on that we can't. So we would say, well, God forbid that the, that the truth of God would change, that the promises of God would change, that these things that you would say, we depend on these words of God, we can't depend on them because they may change, they may alter. So how do we depend upon them? So thus, when our brothers and sisters start offering these aspects, like in you know, Colossians chapter 2, where they're saying, they're comparing the words of God to the elemental uh, principles of the world. Like, wow, brother, please take caution here. What you're saying, you're saying that the words of God are compared to the most elemental things, the basic things that just can pass away, change on a whim, whatever. So we just say, okay, you've got, you don't like this. That's one thing to just say, I don't like this commandment. But to say, this commandment is not from God is a thing where we must take extreme caution on it because that is actually one of the key topics of what Yeshua's response is to these leaders. You've heard all these instructions from God about good shepherd, about these various aspects of who God is, what his servant is going to be like. And now you are attributing this to say, no, uh, that is not actually how this works. Uh, yes? Isn't that what the Nicolaitans were known for? And God said that he absolutely abhorred and hated the doctrine of Nicolaitans because they were always changing to appease the culture. 
you know, whatever fit their fancy. I yeah, mean, that and, was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And then, and then you also see them uh, compared also to the doctrine of Bilam or Balaam. So a similar sort of thing. But it is very interesting that when you see, the, as we go through each year with the, the conversation with Bilam, is that it's a very interesting picture because he is a double agent. He is well-known in history for being a seer of other, the other Shadim, the other so-called powerful ones, destroyers of Canaan. So he was working from all different kinds of sides on this. But eventually, he is just basically given the command to do what? Speak only these words. And he got at least that much of it to say, I can only speak these words to be faithful to it. But his whole life was a back and the forth, and he can be pulled one way and pulled the other way. And we see later on that he's pulled into the great deceptions there in Midian to um, lead a whole lot of the people of Israel down a very terrible path of running after the pursuits of their flesh rather than the restorative aspects of the Spirit of God that were trying to be done through the whole wilderness experience of going out of Mitzrayim to the mountain and then and finally after that first generation died off, then going into the land. So Bilam was throwing another curveball into this. So in one case... He was one of those cases that you see Yeshua talking to some of the leaders of the time period. Like, you know, you may get people into the kingdom, but you yourself won't get in. And Bilam was a good example of that, that it seems like that he was there as a vehicle for a great prophecy of the coming Messiah, yet he himself became a vehicle for <laughs> the kingdom of the adversary. So uh, it's, it's one of those things that when Yeshua was talking about, if the adversary is fighting the adversary, how can his kingdom even stand? It won't. Yes. Would Bilam be considered a, his own contronym? <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Yeah. In, interesting, interesting figure. But it's one of those things that at least he was faithful in the one message that he was given to bring forward. So that's when we see this, this picture of uh, the blasphemy against the Spirit of God. You know, it should remind us about one of the aspects that we have in, we see earlier on in the Gospel of John, with Yeshua going down to Yochanan to be baptized. What does it say that the Spirit of God came upon him the shape of a dove. So thus you're seeing a, a representation that heaven is anointing, that the Spirit of God is anointing the Mashiach. So thus, when you get down back to our passage in John chapter 10, these leaders, who are they really battling against yeah 
Which brings us to the topic here of, we were mentioning earlier about the, about the Shema. Um, one of the aspects of the uh, Shema as it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. We say it every Shabbat, and it's a part of the prayer practice of the people of God every day. So one of the interesting aspects is that this is something that pervades all of the Gospel of John. And the key place where you see it is in the, what's commonly called the farewell discourse, which covers a good chunk of like John chapter 13 and then through chapter 17. And chapter 17 concludes with, or includes what's known as the high priestly prayer, or it's also known as the farewell prayer. And several times in that, you have what seems like this, this kind of circular sort of thing that's going on. You're like, um, these, these passages in here, for example, uh, in John seventeen eleven. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. And then on into John 17, verses 22 and 23. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that we may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you have loved me. I mean, it just sounds like an inter- connected thing is like well what is going on you and me and i and you and they and us and um how on earth do you see this this going together uh yes rose go ahead please i see it like uh, baking a loaf of bread Hmm. because you have all these ingredients and as you add them to the bowl and you began to stir the mix and you began to knead it and and do do what you do to the bread that it becomes one beautiful loaf of bread one loaf. So I, that's how I see. We're all going to be one in, in God. When it's all done, when it's all said and done, mm-hmm. it'll all be one. Yeah. When so, that new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and, and, and all these little bricks, you know, we're all enmeshed in there and into that holy of holy and, and God and, and Christ and the Holy Spirit, we're all there together in that holy city. What a glorious sight that will be. Mm, that's my amen. wish anyway, is to be one yeah. of them bricks. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Or, you know, the Apostle Peter talking about being holy stones gathered together into the house of God. Indeed. So one of the things that you see in this particular passage in John chapter 17 of these um, pictures of the interconnectedness between the father and the son and the son and believers and believers with other believers is something that you see in Mark chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 22 when people were coming to Yeshua and asking, well, which is the greatest commandment? And you have it, you know, in one account, he's asking the person to, to say which one it is. And the other one, he recites which one it is. And you see the, what's talked about is the first commandment or the great commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. So 
And here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So that is what we have as the great commandment. And then talking about the second greatest commandment of loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, one of the interesting aspects is that, um, yeah, before we go into that, yes, Alex, go ahead. um, Maybe I always put everything in historical perspective, but, you know, they were living according to the law, which was they had it. They had it figured out how to act down to the word. Mm. And if you dodged everything this way, you were sinless. Paul and others were just perfectly sinless. You know, the world was changing at that point with Greek thought and Romans coming in. Maybe you could do that in an isolated community. You could not live by the law that way now, but uh, in God and his wisdom with Yeshua, it's, it's fulfilling that law. It's putting a heart to it. So you're not going to kill somebody just because they said Jehovah. But they had it down where you could. I mean, you know, there was primitive life then. You know, oh, what happened to your kid? Said Jehovah out loud. Oh, yeah, that's a bummer. Well, you know, one of those things that Yeshua confronted someone in that regard, you know, and he was asking him about, well, which one of the laws? And so he recited these laws, and he's like, well, each one of these things I've kept from my youth. And then Yeshua said, well, there's one thing you still lack. And then, then said, hey, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. So, I mean, each one of us has something in there that we think we are following to the letter of the law, but in a sense, we're not. And that's one of the aspects you see in um, what Paul is reminding the believers there in Romans chapter 2, where he's thinking like, you know, you think you're following through all of these things. Are you robbing temples and going through these things that are, you would say, egregious sort of things, but it's in a sense what we end up doing all the time and not even really realizing of how there are things that come in between us and God all the time. But that's one of the things where we can encourage our brothers and sisters in the body of Messiah who, when they look into the prophecies talking about a temple being restored, and they think that's anathema. Why would you ever need that? Because we've got Yeshua. Why would you ever need a temple to be restored? Why would you ever need offerings to be presented again? We have Yeshua. Well, the point is, is that it has never been about the offerings. We, we see that each time we go through Leviticus, the offerings themselves are an after effect of something that has already happened within us. You know, you have to have the things worked out before you show up at the temple with your offering. And Yeshua says that plainly. He says, hey, look, you're showing up there at the offering with the Shalomim offering, saying, hey, everything's cool between you and, you and me, God. We're, we got it all figured out. We're, we're good together. But I was like, um, is there a problem between you and other people? Have you worked that out? Oh, okay. That's, then don't come here with your offering until you've worked this thing out, then come with your offering. And that's something that you see from Isaiah chapter 1 and moving forward, that you can't treat the things of God like the pagans do. 
where you just bring them and it's quid pro quo. I bring a gift, you give me absolution. Uh, yes, uh, Carrie, go ahead, please. I don't know if this is where you're going, just kind of some thoughts that I'm having, but um, kind of going back to the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, we can't really obey the letter of the law without also obeying the spirit. It's just really not possible. And I, it, just the thought that I've had on the, you know, where he's talking to the, the rich young ruler, and there's the first greatest commandment, and then there's the second greatest commandment. I don't really think that they're actually first and second. I think that linearly we have to have them placed somewhere. The reality is we can't obey the first one without also obeying the second simultaneously. And I think that the two of them are really a picture of that, the letter and the spirit. And, you know, when we read the Torah, almost all of it is more about how we treat each other than mm -hmm. how we treat God. And the nations and people who don't believe, they don't care very much about how we treat our God. They care about how we treat each other, and they care about how we treat them. And, you know, so I'm just thinking, it's like, you know, Messiah's miracles, you know, most of his miracles were centered around helping people and, you know, helping humans, people who were poor and people who were, you know, injured or ill or whatever. And so I think about that, and it's like, okay, if they're saying that he's blaspheming then and the blasphemy has to do with hashem's reputation to the nations in a way then on the flip side weren't they kind of saying that the adversary is the one who's responsible for helping the poor and helping the ill and making hashem out to be like he was like a god of the nations yes. because that's what they were doing so it's like at the flip side you know, so I, I don't know. It's just kind of some thoughts that I was having, yeah. but it's, you know, I think that letter and spirit, you know, sometimes we get so focused on obeying the letter and, you know, we lose the spirit in there and that's how we're treating other people. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a great observation because one of the things that uh, Paul brings up in Romans when he says the law is spiritual, it's because it's something that is going on within you and your relationship with heaven. These are ways, parameters in which, you know, God says, hey, you behave and you also approach me. But at the essence of it, it is something that is not material. Because all of us can wear our masks and everything looks great on the outside, but our connection with God is dead on the inside. So thus, when Paul is talking about you know, dead works, that is in a sense what you're referring to, is that you are going through emotion, but what is the actual connection that you're having with heaven? And also with the John 17, it's a great example of the, the first and the second greatest commandments together, is that Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. So all of these things circling around together, your connection with heaven, your connection with other people, I in you, you, you in me, you each in each other, all these together. Which brings us back to the Shema, Hear, O Israel, they're in in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
starting in verse 4. Now, this, you know, from the days of Rabbi Akiva in the early 2nd century AD, the Shema prayer and the various aspects of it came to be known as the backbone, almost the Jewish statement of faith as it's referred to in a number of historical documents. And it became a pivotal way that you were expressing who God is and who God isn't. Now, in the various ways that you can translate this, those four Hebrew words that are in the Shema prayer, you know, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. So four words. Now, in Hebrew, one of those things that uh, is basic and makes translation so much fun is that uh, in Hebrew, a sentence can be just two words, and there may not be any verbs in it whatsoever. So oftentimes, you have to decide, well, is this a clause or is this a sentence? So Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Adonai Eloheinu, is that a sentence or is it Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, a sentence. So thus, you get the various renderings of it. For example, like the NIV, the NSAB, the Septuagint, and the 1917 Jewish Product Publication Society renders those last two words there, the Lord is one. But the 1985 and the 2006 JPS version renders it the Lord alone. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And where they get that from is from Zechariah, where it's talking about that you have the Lord will be the only one left. After all, after the day of the Lord, there is it, that the Lord alone, that is it. But it's using echad. That is, but that's the context of it. There is only one who is left, the Lord alone. That is it. So one of the things that you could see in some of the, um, the Jewish study Bible take on this, well, why, why was this translation changed? Because you got the 1917 JPS version, the Lord is one. You got the 2000, uh, 1985, starting with the translation, the Lord alone. One of the things they note is that that older translation from the days of Akiva moving forward into even the modern age, a key reason for the Lord is one was because of the, as a polemic against Christianity's use of it and a statement, the Lord is one, the Lord is it. That is it. But one of the things you'll see in some of the more modern JPS takes on it is like, what is Deuteronomy actually getting at? This is the second generation going into the land. They go into Canaan, and as, as you'll see, some commentaries refer to it as they're going into um, Baal Incorporated because there wasn't just one. There was lots of Baals. There was Baal this, Baal Tzaphon, lots of them. There was a lot of ones that had this Baal Lord Lord of the flies, Lord of the thunder, Lord of lightning, Lord of this, Lord of the north. There was a lot of them that went by those particular names. So in the pantheon of Canaan, 
here come the Israelites in. And they need to realize, okay, there's all sorts of these powers out there, but there is only one who is unique about this. So is this a statement of what the Lord is or who the Lord is and your relation to the Lord? So among all these other spectrums, only the Lord. All these other buffet of beliefs that you have available to when you go into the land of Canaan, there is only the Lord. That is the only dish on your buffet line. That is it. There's no, you just kind of pick up your spiritual plate and kind of put a little Baal on there, you know, maybe a little Adonai on there, uh, maybe two-thirds Adonai, maybe one-third Baal going to leave a little bit in there to season it with different belief systems, whatever. No, this is not a buffet. There is only one item on the menu. And you're, yes, only manna. There's only one bread from heaven that comes down. Hallelujah, indeed. So one of those things that we see is that um, a realization here and goes back to what alex was referring to earlier well couldn't you just render this aspect of um i and the father are one there in john chapter 10 verse 30 wouldn't that just be one of purpose yes but one of the things that has proved a challenge with um a number of um our brothers and sisters in the tribe of Yehuda is to understand that the one of purpose has different elements that come with it. And that's something that you'll see it called as in the Talmudic literature, the menim or the, the, the in-betweeners, otherwise known as the heretics, because they brought up these various passages, the angel of the Lord appearances where you have, and we just read about one in our last Torah passage, not this week, but the week before, where you had the angel of the Lord has an encounter with Yaakov. Then you see later on in the same Torah passage where it's talking about Adonai has, says the same thing. So people brought this up over time. Well, we see these apparitions in the Torah, and the Torah does not explain it, does not explain it whatsoever. It's just, it's a matter of fact. And you see the patriarchs interacting with the angel of the Lord and these different apparitions, and they don't seem to make a big deal of it, except with these references like, well, what is your name? What is your name? You know, tell me who your name is. We saw that with the passage of, of Yaakov wrestling with somebody. And that name being like, we see it there in the book of Joshua. It's like, eh, what are you asking my name for? It's wonderful. It's the same word you see in Isaiah, that he will be called wonderful. That is, it's a name that is beyond any sort of comprehension of it. So when we see the picture of this in John chapter 10, and during the days of Hanukkah, we see the historical setting of this. This is a celebration of the rededication of 
the dwelling place of God on earth. This place where he has chosen to put his name back in business, the open sign is now on again. He has decided, hey, he's going to occupy this again. So in the, in the context of this, you have Yeshua coming in and they're like, don't keep us in suspense. Are you the Mashiach or not? The response could basically be, do you know who the Mashiach is actually supposed to be? And points them back to Psalm 82, which would point them back to Exodus chapter 22. You, rulers, are delegated the power over life and death from the creator of heaven and earth. You can make decisions over life and death, have a court case, and decide over life and death, including blasphemy. You, Elohim rulers, have the power. God has given you that power to decide between life and death, to decide between are you lifting the name of the heaven, uh, the creator of heaven and earth up, or are you dragging it down and making it worse among all the nations? You have that power. God has given you that power. Can you actually make that decision with what is actually in front of you? So thus, you see what Yeshua's response is. I've done these good works. Which, for which of them are you going to stone me? Do you actually understand what the work of the Mashiach actually is? Not to do parlor tricks or be a charitable benefactor from heaven on earth, but to reconnect mankind with God. That is the role of the Mashiach. We read about it just a few passages earlier in the Torah, the ladder between heaven and earth. That is the role of the Mashiach. And Yeshua even said that to one of his students, saying, you will see heaven's opening up and what? Angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. You will see that lived out here. And we continue. We're all in this room. We're benefactors of that. That work of the Mashiach, the connection between heaven and earth. So thus, when you get this question, was Yeshua a blasphemer on Hanukkah? No, he was a bucket of cold water on those leaders saying, do you even know what this house is supposed to be about? Do you even know what this house, what your role as the leaders of this nation, what this nation is even supposed to be for? It's not to have a certain status. We have a nice building that, you know, the Roman Empire has dumped a lot of money in over decades to make it a, one of the wonders of the world. That is not the purpose of Israel, to be on a travelogue or to be on one of the the travel destinations of the world. No, it is to be a beacon between heaven and earth, to draw all the world to heaven. That is it. A light in the darkness, and the darkness cannot 
overcome it. They may try hard. They may try hard and stamp their feet. And they you know, will come up with a lot of rules and regulations of how you're supposed to have a blasphemy trial and throw them all out and pick up stones to carry it out on the spot. So that is what you see in this particular passage. So hopefully uh, give a little bit of insight into not only the, the gospel of John, but also what Yeshua was doing in the temple on a given Hanukkah. Yes. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in the Shema, isn't it when it says the Lord is one, isn't the word for that echad? Echad. So that's like the unified multiple, basically, because well, it's kind and, of and like that's, for And marriage. that's another aspect because in Genesis 224, it talks about when after Chava, the Lord formed Chava, brought them, brought Chava to Adam, and he said, hey, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And then it goes on and says, for this reason, then man is to leave his father and his mother and to devak. Remember, we encountered that word last Torah passage where you had uh, Shechem. He was, he was devak big time over Dina. He was cleaving to her. Well, that wasn't the way you're supposed to do that. No, it was between the husband and the wife. They both leave their families and they devote to each other. And in the process of cleaving to each other, just like Israel was supposed to devote to Adonai, to cling to, cleave to Adonai, so husband and wife cleave together. And in the process, they become echad. Now, echad can mean one like you see in Genesis chapter 1, when it talks about Yom Echad, or day one, or really first day, because Echad is also used when you talk about, um, another usage of it is, uh, is uh, Chodesh, Chodesh Echad, or first month. So it can mean first, it can mean one, it can mean alone. Those are uh, lots of different ways that you can have a range of meaning of it. And uh, really, that's why a lot of people connect that Genesis 2.24 to the Shema, because it is that kind of relationship. And when you see the, re the marriage relationship that you see throughout the Torah between mankind, between Israel and Adonai, you can generally see why that is that those are combined together. And Yeshua even talks about that and quotes that same passage from Genesis 2.24. Well, that's kind of what I was thinking because I was, I mean, I know we're reading it in the Greek, but I just thought all of a sudden like, oh, what if he actually was thinking Echad when he said, I am the father. And, that is, and then I was also thinking, is that kind of what he was trying to say is that the leadership should have been Echad with Hashem, yes, because being of the same mission, yes, in that way, and being of the same mission that is just like husband and wife, you are forming this same thing together. Yes, yeah. do you under actually uh, get then what the role of the Mashiach is with heaven on this? And that's that's why in um, in under the, the hood of the, the Greek there, you know, I and the Father are one. I and the Father is the, the word for ice, or which is the, the form of the Greek form for 
is a one or one so in the shema in greek it is ice too which is odd because that's not the way you'd usually write it and a lot of people have noted hey that's a strange way to render it in greek because in the septuagint is good in some cases in its use of greek but also clumsy in its other cases because it is trying to make the greek rendering for hebrew which is they're different languages <laughs> really really quite different so um that rendering of it in the shema is also ice as well so that is a very interesting and also in genesis 2 24 it is also ice as well one so you get that picture both from the the Torah and into the apostolic writings between the Hebrew and the Greek renderings of it is that they're trying to communicate this message. And what we had read earlier there in uh, John chapter 8, when it talks about, you know, before Abraham was, I am, that is really strange in Greek. And you'll see a lot of uh, lexicographers will say, that is just bizarre way to write this in Greek. So, there's more like a Hebrew rendering of it than it is a Greek rendering. But it's like, okay, that's what it says. We'll be faithful to it. So that's where we'll close things out here today. Any last thoughts or comments or questions? All right. Amen. Yes, uh, go ahead. If I badmouth the, pres uh, the, the president, uh, am I bringing God down? Well, that's one of the, one of the reasons why... <laughs> you should always refrain from bringing scorn upon anyone and okay. and right. it's very interesting you bring that up because when yes and we, we we all really should because it is natural for us to just want to do that and it's very interesting and uh, one of the things i was looking through when they talk about blasphemy and especially on that passage they're talking about to um, blaspheme the leader of your people um, one of the things that's, that's brought forward and a number of people noted is that from the um, small little letter of Jude, it mentions is that the archangel did not even want to say anything bad against the adversary. He said, the Lord rebuke you, rather than, you know, you good for nothing. So he wouldn't even deem to say that about the adversary. He said, well, the Lord, the Lord rebuke you. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. So that's what's kind of taken as like, this is how, how um, we should take that idea of the, uh, the powers that are over us, even in the civil realm, we should have respect for and when we see the examples of like the prophet daniel who was high up in office for a lot of really bad people when you see in history nebuchadnezzar awful so darius awful absolutely awful but he still respected them you might say well he's just looking to save his own neck but when you see what the Lord saved him from, lions, etc., um, I don't think he was worried about that. No, he was respectful by the position that he was put in. And a lot of people have commented on it. This is the, um, the realization of soft power. 
a similar thing you see in John chapter 13 when you see Yeshua says, hey, he knew where he came from. He knew where he was going. So what did he do? He took on the garb and the role of a servant. He didn't have to try to pretend to be somebody special. Joseph did the same thing. So we have those examples in there as to, yes, that's, that's why even people, we you know, um, to not say, um, in so many cases, uh, you fool. Um, so as Yeshua says, that puts you in danger of the fires of Gehenna. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, Ben and I, uh, go ahead. I was uh, thinking about how when uh, Yeshua HaMashiach was walking in Solomon's ports, the Feast of Dedication, some call it Hanukkah, Festival of Lights, and he was talking to the Jews there, how him being the light of the world, you know, how during the Festival of Lights, the light of the world was in their midst, and um, how he also had talked to them about, you know, destroying this temple, and then it will, you know, and how they missed the whole point. They were thinking the natural. They weren't thinking spiritually. They weren't seeing spiritually about how he was talking about his body and the body, his body being the temple and how in three days. And then I wanted just on the, that line of thought, I wanted to read uh, Revelation 21, uh, verse 22. And I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Yep. And that is the lesson of the tabernacle. Because he was say, told Moshe, build this after the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So that is the actual. The tabernacle, everything that goes on there, hugely important because God says, learn these lessons, do these lessons. But remember, these are not a magic charm. They are representations of the actual. So the message there in John chapter 10 is when the actual shows up, will you recognize it? Will you actually recognize it? You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O, halal dot info.